All right, thanks, Ben. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. As uh, Spencer said earlier, glad you guys are with us, especially if you're uh, brand new, but welcome to all of you. Uh, so preaching-wise right now, uh, as a church, it's um, the Sunday after Labor Day is, uh, tends to be kind of a big launch day for ministry and uh, life, I guess, school and everything. So we uh, traditionally uh, like to sort of um, pause, I guess, uh, from our larger uh, Bible book series. We just got done with First Timothy, starting the Gospel of John in a few weeks. Uh, but for a few weeks, then we're going to uh, just talk a bit about our vision and our values as a church, some things we believe here, core beliefs, uh, what life is like now coming out of the pandemic maybe and where we're headed uh, as, as a church. So we uh, fully realize and are actually really excited that a lot of you are new. A lot of you have come to Hiawatha uh, or started to since the pandemic began. And that's actually kind of an interesting thing too, right? Because uh, whatever we were before the pandemic, uh, things are still not totally like that, though a lot is, a lot is the same. Uh, not everything is, and so you haven't maybe fully gotten um, Hiawatha pre-pandemic version, again, whatever that is, right? So, um, but, so all that to say we value this, we value clarity as a church, even if we can't always get agreement, we value clarity, so you just know where we're coming from on some things. Um, but again, this, we'll we not be covering everything these few weeks, I'm going to leave a lot on the cutting room floor just because of time. And this is still going to be a sermon, so, uh, not, you know, not a class, not a, you know, a family meeting or something like that, those are great, we do that as well in different settings, but this is a sermon. So it will be still specifically, uh, has a purpose to it, and it will be theological in nature and things like that. You'll see what I mean as we go on here. Uh, we do have an intro class coming up on the 25th. If you came in late for that, we'd love you to come to that. It's a, kind of a one-day class, 9 to 2.30 on Saturday the 25th. It kind of covers all things Hiawatha. So if this kind of um, you know, opens up some cans of worms or uh, if you don't quite get all your itches scratched here in terms of, like, what is Hiawatha Church, uh, we'd love you to come to that to, to learn more. So... Uh, uh, please, please do that. Uh, today, though, I want to talk about um, change, but mostly in reference to God who does not change. Uh, in theology, we call this the immutability of God. And a lot of the sermon today was kind of born out of my reading of many different kinds of uh, articles and posts and blogs during the pandemic. I just flexed up to my eyeballs in this stuff. Maybe a lot of you were as well. But from other pastors or ministry leaders, and talking with many of them too, I'm a, I'm a part of a uh, coaching cohort uh, from pastors from around the country. So it's kind of fun just to talk with them a lot during the pandemic about what they're seeing, what they're changing, what they're not changing in their churches. But, um, but a lot of kind of the sentiment out there from a lot of like, you know, futurists or people like to think about the future is that the church should ride the wave of change that we're experiencing on like a societal level. And some of those things were good or helpful. Some of them weren't. Uh, in fact, a lot of them already seem outdated, even though they were written like five months ago, um, because it turns out it's really hard to predict the future. Surprise, surprise. Um, but it just is, right? But that's the tension that we have with this issue is change is everywhere right now, right? For better or worse, it can be good, it can be bad, it can feel good, it can feel bad. Uh, but in the church, we are grounded on the most unchangeable being in the universe, God himself. And so I think um, that's kind of the tension. We change, but God doesn't, and he lives within us. So how do you, like, live there, right? Like, how does that look uh, as a church grows and changes and time goes on? Uh, what is a stalwart and never changes one bit? And yet what changes all the time and should, you know? That's a tough question. The great questions to be asking, especially for leaders, 
at any kind of organization, in this case a church, to always be asking. We do do that here. Um, but then there's a lot of things we have to have the courage to say, no, we're, we're not changing. We will never change on this issue. No matter how good it might feel, what the world might say, what other Christians might say, we are firmly digging our heels into this you know, thing or issue or way of doing things. So uh, that, can be, that can be difficult. But again, I think because God doesn't change, uh, he qualifies the conversation. He gives us a safer place to deal with change or non-change, as it were, in the end. And, th- and that's really where I want to go with this today is how does this doctrine, the, the immutability, the unchangeableness of God lead us to Jesus and to good news? How does this shape a church culture? Uh, and again, we'll barely scratch the surface, but I hope, especially if you're new, if you're not, I'll remind you, but especially if you're new, this will teach theology and bring us to the gospel, but also kind of talk about how we want to do things here, how we do do things here, um, how it should shape a church culture, even if it never does it perfectly, how we, how we think it should, all right? Let me back up, though, first and start with some basic definitions and verses uh, this will go pretty quick here, but the immutability of God, again, this means God does not change ever. Uh, we call this an incommunicable attribute of God, which means he does not share this with us. Some of his attributes he does share with us. In some ways, we are like God. We're made in his image, and there, there are things in that category. There's a whole other category of attributes that we are just not at all like God with, and one of those would be immutability. We change every single day in a hundred ways, uh, right, or things change around us. With God, it's the exact and complete and total opposite. God never has changed, never will. Uh, his grace never changes. His gospel, not, not even a speck of it. Um, this is a very, by the way, a very orthodox belief about God. It's, it's only veered from by those who uphold things like process theology or trajectory hermeneutics or open theism or things like that. If you don't know what those are, don't worry about it. Um, but God's word comes in and kind of counters uh, those things with things like this. In Malachi 3.6, God, God himself says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. And then in the New Testament in James 1, Every good gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. One thing I want you to see here, uh, aside from the obvious, and which is, clearly the Bible's teaching that God is, is unchangeable or immutable, is that in the first and third ones especially, you see that his immutability benefits us, right? I, the Lord, don't change, therefore you won't be consumed. Um, I am the Lord who gives good gifts, and I am the one who, who does not shift uh, like shadows, right? There's no variation in me. So that particular connection between gifts and God's unchangeability in the third one here is important to see. Uh, as well. Even just their close proximity teaches us theology. And that's where I want to go next and spend the rest of our time uh, today is um, addressing this question, and I kind of did this already, but how is this doctrine good news? And um, I don't know where all of you are. A lot of you studied theology before, maybe even uh, in a seminary or like a church-based training setting. Some of you have never done that. Some of you are in between. Um, So I don't know where you guys are coming from, but in my experience, Sometimes this is a, is a neglected question in systematic theology or topical theology. What I mean by that is it's one thing to define a term or even a characteristic of God. It's another thing altogether to show how the gospel serves as that doctrine's undercurrent. So in other words, if we're talking about a different thing like the, like the Trinity, 
uh, why and how God, the Bible teaches how God exists as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's one thing to say the Bible teaches that and to show a verse or two or to define terms. It's another thing to say, why is it good news that God exists as a trinity? And not a, why, is it, why is it bad news if God was a unitarian God? Why is it good news that he's a relational being? Before he made anything, he was a relational being in and of himself. Like, where's the gospel of Jesus Christ in that? How is the gospel the, the subterranean undercurrent that flows under uh, these things? So, now just defining things is good, don't get me wrong, but a lot of systematic theologies and topical theologies um, don't do that, and I think we can do better. I think, and I say we broadly speaking here as Christians, wherever you guys are at, I think we need to ask this question. If we want to truly do theology, we have to ask how the most important part of Christian theology, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is at the pinnacle. Or if you want to, see, you want to flip it around and say, how is it the foundation or that undercurrent? Um, that, that is, that's the question, all right? So that's what we're going to do the rest of our morning. And on one level, it's maybe kind of obvious. Um, God's unchangeableness is good news because it means he won't change for the worse or the better, right? Like, if God could change, it means that whatever he is right now, um, it means that, you know, if he changes for the better, it means that what he is right now isn't the best version of himself. And that's kind of a scary thought, right? Or it should be. Huge implications for the Bible, because you could say the Bible is like a, at least historically speaking, a past word of God. So, how could we ever stand on it? It would be shifting sand. Maybe God disagrees with his past self. Maybe he has something different or better to say now, we might think. Um, it's an incredibly difficult and impossible place to kind of exist spiritually, if you actually think about it. Um, but that's what would be the case if he could change for the better. If he could change for the worse, that's the nightmare of nightmares, right? And so, um, but the fact that God doesn't change and he's the essence of love, the essence of goodness, that he saved us at highest of cost to himself, and that's never changing, is, I mean, gosh, we, we take this for granted, right? But the fact that it never changes should blow our minds, but also give us peace above peace above peace. So, okay. Uh, but the big answer, I think, to this, that's the first kind of entry point, the door. I think the big answer to, to this question of um, how is this characteristic of God good news is that it means his gospel is immutable as well. The, the word that proceeds from his mouth, which it, the Jesus says this, right? The word that proceeds from his mouth is his possession, so it's his, it's a part of him, and so it is also unchangeable. The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is an unchangeable reality. So a few places, just to walk through a few, uh, like, you know, kind of outflows of this scripturally, where we see this. Uh, we started with kind of some definitional verses, but these I think are actually just as, if not more important. Galatians 1, 6-9 says, uh, I'm astonished that you, speaking to some Christian churches in the region of Galatia in the first century, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort or change the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Another way to look at this uh, would be to look at Jesus' final words, which are, it is finished. Uh, you know, Jesus didn't die, and, and right before he died, he didn't say, in progress, you know, dot, dot, dot. 
or something. Uh, that'd be bad news, right? Be like, wait a minute, what? It'd be like someone like on the phone saying, oh, and by the way, never, ever, ever, ever forget to, and then kind of hanging up, uh, right? So uh, nor, nor, did he, nor did he die, nor did he say right before he died, now it's your turn, as if like his ministry was passing the baton in a moralistic sense to people like us, to now go change the world. Here's the baton. He didn't say that. He said, what I am doing is finishing the work of God. I am finishing the scriptural canon. I am closing up all of prophecy, right? There's no other thing to say. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is a great passage on this, where it says, in the former days, God spoke in many and various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son in a very singular finality kind of way, right? Many and various ways that prepared the way for the final way, but the final way is here. It's finished. I've finished the work of saving people from their sins. What I'm doing here is not an accidental martyrdom. It is the reason I came, to die in the place of criminals like you and me, the place of sinners like you and me, the place of the exiled from God like, like you and me. You could also look at the scars of Christ, right? How Jesus showed his scars after he rose from the dead to, to Thomas. And then uh, in Revelation 5, it says, Then I saw a lamb, speaking of Jesus, looking as if he had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And they sang a new song saying, You were slain. Past tense, right? But look at how Jesus will present himself forever. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, Jesus' crucifixion scars are unchangeable. They last forever. They're, they're immutable. Not that he'll, he continues suffering forever. His suffering's done. But he maintains the scars that the gospel of his, his scars might be a reminder in an unchanging way because his scars express the reason he came, the essence of his love, right? And so we'll always see him as the lamb. We'll always see him as the scarred one for us because he loved us that much. And he paid the price to win us back and to purchase us out of the family of the devil and away from exile, out of the tomb of our sin and into his loving arms forever. Also, God's promise. Uh, one of the, there's many promises we could put here, but just for time's sake, two big ones, or one big one, really. God says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And also in 2 Timothy, that, that when we are unfaithful to him, he is still faithful. It's crazy, right? It actually kind of sounds a lot like wedding vows, I think, on purpose, because we know that God positions his relationship to us in wedding terms, right? He is like a bridegroom, and we are like a bride, uh, figuratively and metaphorically speaking. That's why marriage exists in the first place. Um, but it's the, it's the epitome of love and romance to say, I'll be with you always to my dying breath, and that's what God says to us. The promise isn't, I'll be with you until things change or until my love changes or until I stop getting something out of this relationship from you. God never says that. But instead, I will never, ever leave you, no matter what, nor forsake you. And the gospel is the, really the only thing that can kind of serve as the power behind this, right? Like, um, and this, and this, is, this is a divine love. The, the Bible never says, God says this to you. Now, human beings, I want you to say that and promise that back to God. Never says that. This is never a human-to-God promise. Like, okay, God, thank you. Wow, now, now guess what, God? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't ever say that to God. Because you will. You already have sitting here. And has, as have I. We all forsake him in some capacity, even passively or subconsciously or unknowingly or in our sleep. 
Um, none of us are perfectly faithful to him, but you're not saved based on your faithfulness. You're saved based on his faithfulness under the cross, into hell, out of it, and back in love. Because as the Bible says in Songs 8, I think, death, or love is strong as death, but with Christ, love is stronger because Christ is risen from the dead, right? Okay, so there's a lot to say here we could say. This leads me, though, into this next bit, which is where I want to dive into the rabbit hole a little bit more. And, and I'll start by saying this. I'm going to say something that is so obvious, you'll probably think I'm crazy. But just bear with me, and then I'll explain it. All right, but the thing is this. In theology, and when we read the Bible, some, something is good news, not just because it's good, but because it's not bad. Okay, so, right, yeah, duh. It's, it's not really saying anything, uh, but it kind of is, all right? So, but I'm saying this because the Bible talks this way. Um, it, it, it's the presence of the good, but also the absence of the bad is what makes for good news. Like saying, I feel healthy but also I do, today, but also I don't have cancer today is kind of saying the same thing, but not really, like they're kind of different, you know? They convey the same truth, but different sides of the same coin maybe. When the Bible talks about the gospel, it says two things that are the same but different. It says, you are saved by the grace of God alone and also decidedly not by your works. That, see, see how those are like saying the same thing but also different? The Bible will talk about them both in the same verse sometimes but also kind of each in turn, sometimes not at the same time. Saved by grace but also decidedly not by your works. And both those things are meant to encourage. Both those things are meant to teach and to instruct, and to relieve, and to save, and I would say also to transform. Not just the first side, but the, the latter side as well. All right, so he, here's what I mean kind of by way of a verse on immutability that I think is a really important verse on immutability, just kind of as a standalone. I'm going to bring it in here and talk about how this idea is also further down the rabbit hole and meant for our encouragement. First Peter 1 and actually here, Peter in the New Testament, he quotes Isaiah 40, written like 700 years or so before he lived. And he's interpreting part of what Isaiah, God said through Isaiah in a really important way. So kind of have your antennas up for that. First Peter 1, here's the quote. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Okay, so a couple of things here. In one sense, this is just a simple comparison between the mortal and the immortal. Uh, we die, God doesn't. Like when you watch your grass get brown this fall and it stops growing pretty well and starts to kind of get crusty, um, that's you and that's me. Uh, we are like the grass, the Bible says, all right? But God isn't. He is eternally vibrant. He's a source of all life and, and never dies. Um, and so... It's saying that, but it's also, if you look at it more closely, it's saying more than that too. It's saying the word of the Lord continues on forever. And then he qualifies it. Look at the last part of this, verse 25. And the word is not just any word, God says. It's not a vague term. The word is the word that was preached to us and preached to you, church, he's saying. That is, the word is the gospel. The word is the good news that Jesus is alive and he bled for sinners. That's the thing that will last forever. All right, that's how Peter's interpreting what God said through Isaiah 700 years before he penned this one. 
So the comparison then, in other words, the point of this is to say, the comparison then is between mortal and sinful man and Jesus Christ and the word of the gospel. Like us and the gospel, or us and Jesus, which is another way of saying the flesh and what we do and the spirit and what God does. Or as Paul says elsewhere, our works versus his grace. And just kind of to widen out here with this, um, as we said, and as this is saying, Note that it's the gospel that endures, not necessarily every part of the Bible in the same way, right? Um, And all of you, if you're a Christian, all of you believe this. You might just not realize you do. Um, But when the Bible says things like, um, you know, uh, don't eat shellfish or bacon, that is not lasting forever, praise God, right? That's already dead. That, That law is no longer over us. Jesus changed it right? So we don't think about what we eat because the gospel is not about food. There's a reason that law exists for a time in the Old Testament to prepare the way for Jesus and many in many various ways I can't go into today for time's sake, all right? But when Jesus came, he abrogated those things. That, that do not eat shellfish will not last forever. It's already gone. How much more when Jesus comes back? Will it be gone, right? Now, that's just one simple thing, but how much more then is it true about the whole Old Covenant system? Like, the Old Covenant proper doesn't endure forever. With, it, with its ties to us and our ability to keep and maintain God's stipulations and laws and commandments, right? A uh, big argument in Galatians 3, uh, Romans 10, kind of in Philippians 3, Paul makes is Leviticus 18.5 says the Old Testament basically is a system relationally between God and sinners was do these things and then you will live. Do the law, keep my commandments, and then you will have life. But his argument is that time is over. The new covenant is based on not do and then you'll live, but believe. Cry out to God. Call upon him and then you'll be saved. And you'll be made righteous in his eyes based on his blood and not on your moral proclivity. All right? The words continue on in our Bibles in the Old Testament to tell the story really of their own demise but we're not under them. They don't continue on in the same way. You guys ever heard of um, the idea of planned obsolescence? You ever heard of this idea? You know where um, light bulbs used to last a lot longer and get better, and then all of a sudden they started to like, not last as long because like, they were designed more poorly so they could make them more and keep jobs? You ever heard of this idea? It's actually kind of a crazy thing. It's iPhones, yeah, exactly. Thanks, Nick. Exactly. Or, um, or I've, I've replaced my dishwasher like three times. Uh, you know, anyway. So, but just saying, the, the, uh, the old, te- God had, God's not changing, he just, he designed the Old Testament to fail. He designed the old system to not last. He, he worked in planned obsolescence to the Old Testament system so it would give way to something better. All right, so, but again, the, the big contrast between the former thing and the latter is our works versus his grace. We stay in by what we do versus we are kept in God's arms by his work for us. And 1 Peter is helping us to see this in verse 25 here especially. All right, so, but here. Oh, man, I'm way behind here. Let me just go to this one. Okay, another way to say this would be the center of Christianity is not your progress, but the gospel's rock-solid finality and unchangeableness. Please hear this. I know a lot of you know this, 
Um, all of you don't live as though this is true, though. I don't. At some point in your life, Christian, you won't, right? Like, we don't, we don't always think this. The center of your faith is not your transformation or how much you become like Jesus or your progress. That's change. That, that's good change. That's part of our story, right? But the center is the unchangeableness of the gospel, the unchangeableness of Jesus Christ. See, it means that the gospel does not change in accordance with our works. It's steady whether we're good or bad, faithful or unfaithful, according to 2 Timothy 2. It's his vows to us, not ours to him that truly matter. And his posture towards us does not change based on how much we sin because he never changes. Uh, Or as the Psalms say, his love endures, what? Forever. Right? Do you believe that's true? Like, or do you think his love only goes so far for you as if it were hinged on your ever-changing, vow-breaking spirituality? Which is what your spirituality and mine is at the end of the day. Not to dog on it. Obviously, that God, God is alive in us, right? And our lives change. But at the end of the day, we can't keep our promises. Have you ever, truly? The Bible says, that we're saved by God's grace, not by works. This is the undercurrent of this idea. Um, or I'll put it this way too. God isn't changed by our moral uprightness. We are changed by his unchanging love shown to us through the word, Jesus Christ. God's not changed by our, our morality, good or bad. If he was, it would, it would contradict what the New Testament's saying about the nature of the covenant, the new covenant. But we are changed by his unchanging love shown to us through the word, Jesus Christ. The foundation, unchanging, is what allows our life, the house of our life to be built. built back up. This is the true reason why this doctrine matters, why it's good news for weary, changeable, withering, grass-like souls uh, like, like us. All right. Um, I want to switch gears. Man, there's so much to say. I said for a service, I'll say it again. Um, top, topical sermons are like the worst sometimes. <laughs> so hard to write and to know what's uh, I mean, this morning I'm like crossing out all this stuff. I'm like, oh man, that would have been so good to say. Gone, you know. It's just like there's, there's so much. And so I just had to try to move forward. And I want to start with theology and bring this into implications for our lives and for the church and uh, just, just to share something about Hiawatha in light of this uh, with you all. Um, here's the tension to start with, though. Again, God's church will change because it's made up of human beings. That can be good or bad, right? But it just will. But it also won't change because the church is Christ's body, and Jesus never changes. So good luck with that one, right? You got to kind of wall- wallow around a little bit in that and ask the question again, well, what is unchanging. What is exactly the same here in this church as it was in a house church in Galatia 2,000 years ago from people that look and sound and live completely different from us, other side of the world? What's exactly the same? And what's different? Right? Great questions. So I want to kind of frame it that way today. And I think um, what we could, uh, if you come to our intro class, we can talk more about this. But what is changing? What has changed? Um, you know, in one sense, I don't want to sit up here. I could list a bunch of things. It's probably kind of obvious for you guys. You probably knew this stuff coming in. I will say this, though. 
um, pretty much everywhere you look, things change, right? I mean, it took a snapshot of our church from five years ago or two years ago, kind of held it up to today. Um, we're, we're different. You could talk about change relationally, the people that make up the church, transformationally, um, the, the lens of knowing the gospel better, how things are different now, um, leadership turnover, staffing additions or subtractions, a church planting lens maybe, uh, a, the, a pandemic lens, a growth lens. Um, growth changes everything. And I think, you know, for us, that's, those aren't our words, but we certainly have seen that. And we want to not act like a church of 25 people if we're 350 people big. A, a lot of dysfunction comes from churches when churches are not acting in their size. Uh, at the end of the day. There, I guess lots to say about that, but I'll just put it out there if that's new to you. If a church is trying to act like they're 25 people big or 40, and they're really 350 like we are, dysfunction. Uh, everything needs to change. How you make decisions, uh, how big your leadership teams are, um, how you know, in the know members are about how things hap- happen. In the very beginning, everyone kind of knew almost everything. That can't happen, though, when you grow as a church. It, you know, as much as we might miss that in some ways, not, better, not good or bad, just different, um, it just can't. And so growth changes everything. Organizationally, communication-wise, uh, otherwise, forgetting the third thing, but anyway. Um, so it's wise for a church to ask these questions and to say, what's changing with time, with growth? Uh, what's happening in the world? How can we speak to things maybe that we otherwise wouldn't? I mean, obviously on that level, things change a lot. Peter changes the song list all the time. It's, all, it's almost, not all the time, but you know what I mean. It's like, I think like it, it'd be, it almost makes it sound trivial to start to talk about things because there's probably a thousand things we could, we could literally mention, right? Many of which we don't even know or see, just changes or in the air, okay? What's, what's more important though, I think to ask, or maybe equally important, is just what, what will never change. Um, and, and again, could talk forever, but essentially what's not changing at Hiawatha is our vision to make much of Jesus Christ and to grow the church to full maturity, and to share the gospel with people who have yet to hear. Uh, our neighbors and coworkers and family members and kids we love, and that's what we want to do. And that's never going to change. Our value of gathering like this on Sundays, being a bastion of grace for believers and non-believers alike. Uh, being a place known for love and unity. Uh, that's not going to change, right? So uh, we could go on and on and on and on, listing out our vision or some of our values or like um, our distinctives, um, again, come to the thing on the 25th. We talk about this uh, for a long time. But our, our distinctives aren't going to really change. But what's really etched in the stone, I would say, of Hiawatha we, is everything we talked about before. The true unchanging foundation of all that we are is Jesus Christ himself, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his gospel, the word that, that will endure. Listen to this verse. This is a verse on immutability, but it brings in the church to it. It, it says, the church is being built up attaining the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to the fullness of Christ. Look at, this, look at the so that. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning. Okay, so what this is saying in part is the church, as the church matures in their faith, isn't tossed around by every wind and wave of change or every doctrine every agenda every social cause every cultural movement every political issue no matter how noble but she stays grounded on the non-shifting foundation or rock 
of Christ. And so in that sense, Jesus' unchangeableness leads to our unchangeableness doctrinally and also pragmatically. Also in John 6, um, a lot of you are familiar with this word, but Jesus says at one point, I am the bread. I'm the manna from heaven. And uh, if you know this story in the Old Testament, this is a callback to how God gave Israel bread every day while they wandered in the desert, all the way until they reached the promised land. And Jesus picks up on that, and he's saying, I'm the true bread now. My grace, my death and resurrection, my, my spirit in you. And, and we eat of him spiritually as we move ahead into eternal life. It's what communion's all about. It's what preaching's all about. It's what gospel centrality, we would say here, is ultimately all about. We eat of him as we move ahead into eternal life. But here's the catch and the thing, right? If you were to push the metaphor, it's only him we eat of. So I know not have you read the story before, but remember, if those of you who have, like Israel, they only got the manna, right? There was no other food. That's part of the point. Uh, and actually, it was sinful for Israel to want something else, right? Remember when they said, I don't want the manna anymore. I'm sick of this bread. I want quail. I want meat. Life was better back in Egypt when we were slaves. At least we had more kinds of food there. Okay, so if you're just reading that story, you're thinking, yeah, maybe they got a point, right, or something. Or you're thinking, okay, why is this here? Jesus qualifies all of it. He says, that story exists for the sake of me. I am the new manna, and monotony and repetition with me is what you need. But to reject monotony and repetition with me is to be like Israel grumbling in the desert, wanting more than the grace of God. There must be more than Jesus, is ultimately what they were saying. There's got to be more. There's something better out there. Um, this is a key verse, actually. It might not seem like it, but a key verse when it comes to the immutability of God is the manna bread, is the manna bread, the verse. This is a repetitious, unchanging idea. It's only the gospel, but there's beauty in, in the repetition. Uh, G.K. Chesterton says in Orthodoxy, he says, <clears throat> Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. Every, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. All right, uh, again, more I could say here. I want to start to wrap up with this, though. And what I want you to see in that last quote, but especially the scripture we looked at today, is this is meant to be both theology and pragmatism at the same time. To centralize the repetition and redundancy and monotony of the cross and the bread of Christ's body and his blood spilt for sinners, and to agree on it is to bring together a very diverse group of people who maybe differ on literally everything else. And... Um, I really want you guys to hear that. If you're new especially, if not, please hear that again. 
and join us in, you know, banging that gong, essentially, over and over again. Like, we want diversity, and, and the only way to get that, though, is not really to per- pursue diversity. That, that gets forced. The way to get diversity is to centralize something that's bigger and more beautiful than everyone else's petty agendas in life. They might be okay, but they're a distant, distant, distant second to the beauty of Jesus' love for us. And so when you hold out the gospel and don't make it too wide, but appropriately narrow, as the Bible talks about it, because the gospel gets too wide definitionally sometimes for a lot of people, as you hone in on what Jesus did for us, the one-way love of God, the grace we have in that, and you centralize that, it, it just attracts a diverse group of people. And it's messy, never perfect, and all of that, of course, too. Um, but it does kind of work. And that's why we can take no credit for it, because it's not our gospel. We didn't make this thing up. We're just saying, look at how amazing Jesus is. And he changes literally everything in our life, in our church, and in our city. And maybe that's the greatest kind of irony in in all of this. Um, And that is, most positive change comes to our lives when we stop trying to change and instead rely on the unchanging gospel of grace. Jesus Christ the rock and not the shifting sand of the law. Um, that's, that is a broad maxim there that the scriptures teach in many places. Um, I'll just say, like as a pastor and a sinner, a guy who has more experience now than I did 20 years ago, like messing up <laughs> and also leading people who mess up, uh, is that most positive change comes not when you tell people to change, but when you, you lead them to Jesus. And they just get moved and wrecked and awestruck by the fact that, that, that God would give his one and only son for them a speck, an unworthy speck. Like, the reality is you and I don't understand that that well. Uh, a lot of you do enough to be saved because you're Christians and, and salvation comes through knowledge and reception of that idea, but none of us, myself included, all of our leaders, uh, well, Spence, you, you understand it perfectly, I think. No, just kidding. Spence doesn't either. But... um. No, none of you do. So why would we move on from something that's the most important thing that you'll never fully get in your life? Um, but, but again, we like things that work here. That's why I don't stand up here and tell you just to try harder because it won't work. It's not because there's not a place for that. It won't work. Just say, stop looking at porn. It won't work. Love your wife better, your husband. It won't work. It's the law. It kind of will maybe for a little bit, but if it kind of does, you'll just get proud. You'll think you're better than people who don't do it well. Or you'll get crushed by the weight of expectation because you can't. Despair or pride are not gospel thoughts and heart conditions, right? The way to change is not by trying to change. The way to change is by resting and anchoring yourself on the only unchangeable thing in being in the universe. And that is the finality of the gospel. The reality that whatever your life brings, it won't change a speck. A billion years from now, if Jesus doesn't come back and the earth's still around, the church will be saying the exact same thing as we are here. It doesn't change. It hasn't changed 2,000 years. Isn't that great news? So we desire here to be a church that says, do it again in reference to God's grace to sing the same old song and eat the same manna 
And we hear the echoes of Jesus' death and resurrection call out to us throughout, in all creation like a mockingbird. And when the church is unchangeable, uh, with the gospel unchangeable, people come to church like all of us, full of sin or not, and it's the same. You know, like if you guys, um, and uh, we would ask for your help in this, creating a culture around this. But the beauty of a church culture that centralizes the gospel in an unchanging way is that people come to church full of shame and guilt up to their eyeballs and sin, seeing no way out, and the church is the same. What we do here with our liturgy, if you want to call it that, it's the same, Right? Or you come to church having your best week ever spiritually. It's the same. It's the same. Because God is the same. Your good days don't make him happier with you. Your bad days don't make him disappointed with you or mad at you. Was his wrath poured out on Jesus or not? Come on, we've got to believe this, right? This is where it matters. Good theology matters. So when we have a culture here that is... essentially the same, right, and we gather in the same way, sin or not, faithful or not, broken or not, shame-filled or not, doing well spiritually, whatever that means, or not. Same. God's there, open arms, saying, I love you so much I gave my son. Continue to eat of his body and drink of his blood. That's, That's what church is every single week. So we don't get inflated with our goodness or crushed by our badness. See how church can be that? And so, by God's grace, man, he's been good to us, I think, in that area, but let's not rest on our laurels. Let's pray and gospel-centralize the heck out of the gospel and everything here over and over and over again until we have more of that. You know, I mean, that's what we talk about as leaders, right? We want good gospel theology that leads to good gospel culture that as, that's about grace and not works. Um, Otherwise, we're just some kind of religious shack that's just like the coven down the road or the Muslim whatever down the, down the street here or the Mormons down the, down the whatever there, right, or whatever. Um, I'm not just pointing to real things there. I'm just saying. Like, but we're, just, we're not distinct. We're, we're saved by grace, not by works, period. And so I, I think, like, that's where, hopefully you saw this, but it is the undercurrent. Jesus loves you guys so much. He loves you more than you know. He died for your sins. And in a billion, trillion years, that won't change one letter, one pixel, or one molecule. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, the gospel of grace today, in and through the doctrine of immutability, uh, of course, in your word, which uh, does stand forever. Um, God, I pray as a church you would keep us fixed Um, not caught up by every wind uh, and blowing of doctrinal or philosophical societal change. Um, Help us to be mindful of that, uh, what's going on in the world, of course, and help us to be wise and winsome in how we carry the gospel to people living today in in this uh, changeable time we live in. And yet, may we be sweet because we don't change. Um, Different, maybe a bit offensive, to people and how we're not hopping on every train out there. Um, we're not reactionary uh, but to everything going on in the world, but we just keep going forward to that ultimate promised land, eating the same manna every day, 
no matter what. Um, praising you, worshiping you, thanking you, helping each other up when we fall, and, and trusting you for the grace to go on. In Christ's name, amen.